Chapter thirty one of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter thirty one. The passing of a soul is fraught with mystery. Before it, the callous stand silent and abashed the reckless pause with involuntary awe, the timid shrink with sinking hearts, and all unite in a moment of breathless apprehension, wondering when they, in turn, will pass into the darkness of the great beyond. And what has gone? The form of man remains, motionless certainly, but then are not the sleeping quiet? Therefore why approach reluctantly? It is the same for whom, a brief moment ago, we felt affection or dislike, admiration or pity, respect or contempt. The same, yet not the same. King Death reigns supreme in his impenetrable silence, and the children of men abase themselves before him. So Count Vladimir bared his head respectfully before Colonel St. John, as though acknowledging the presence of his superior. Overhead in the attic the rats held high carnival. Outside the wind swept across the snow-covered garden and around the corners of the house, shaking the window-frames and causing strange, whispering noises to echo down the chimneys and through the vacant halls. And in the bare little upper room the man and woman stood speechless before it. "'Come,' he said gently at last, "'we must go.' But Mrs. Redmond did not answer." She was on her knees, chafing the hands which grew cold beneath her touch. "'Come,' he repeated, "'you can do no good.' She rose reluctantly, while he bent over the inanimate form and removed the contents of the pockets. They held only a few unimportant letters and a shabby leather case which he opened. "'This,' he said gently, "'belongs to you.' Estelle glanced at the woman's face with its wistful sadness, and at the laughing baby beside it. "'Oh!' she exclaimed passionately. "'He loved us! He must have loved us!' The hot tears welled into her eyes as she stooped and pressed her lips to the unresponsive ones upon the floor. "'I cannot leave him here alone,' she said. "'He was my father.' The Russian looked at his watch by the light of the candle. Time passes, he said. It is later than I thought. We must not stay here. I will put money in his pocket to ensure a decent burial. No, no, she interrupted. That is for me to do. I brought him money. As you please, he responded briefly. Come away. But Colonel St. John's daughter lingered, bending to kiss the cold forehead and turning on the threshold for a last look at the still figure. I am his child, she said. I did not love him, but I am his child. She followed the Russian down the curved stairway, past the silent rooms, and into the lower hall. Where are you going? she said sharply as he turned aside. I am going, he replied, to investigate the fireplace in the kitchen. Will you come? The candle made but a feeble gleam of light in the dark cellar, where the dampness hung in drops upon walls and ceiling, and the floor was slippery to walk upon. Count Vladimir stooped over the fireplace and examined the contents. "'The fire is laid,' he remarked shortly. 
Be quick, she said imperatively. Do whatever you will with them. I cannot stay here. The air smothers me. The Russian put the candle upon the floor and turned to his companion. His face was white and set, and the hand which placed the candle shook until the grease ran down upon it. It is for you to say what I shall do with them, he said, for you to say. For me? she repeated. For me? I have waited, he said quietly, for a message from the Countess Vladimir. She was to notify me when to expect her. I wonder, he advanced a step nearer, I wonder why she is so silent. The castles beyond the steps, he continued, are waiting for their mistress. There are empty rooms ready for the touch of a woman's hand, carved stairways wearying for the tread of a woman's foot, and marble corridors longing for the echo of a woman's voice. There is peace, Estelle, safety, happiness, and boundless love for you with me, and the castles themselves will prove palaces of enchantment for us both. Or prisons of Siberia, she interrupted. Love, she continued contemptuously, what do you know of love? Passion, perhaps, strange and inexplicable, but not, not love. Love is patient, long-suffering, and unselfish, tender, enduring, and wonderfully comforting. Oh, I know. My husband loves me, but you— Count Vladimir, she continued as he turned abruptly away, I have something to say to you. I am listening. Mrs. Redmond, however, seemed to find articulation difficult, for she made several ineffectual efforts to speak. "'Look at me,' she said at last, "'and tell me what you see.' "'I see,' he replied slowly, "'God's most wonderful work, the blessing or the curse of man, a beautiful woman.' "'Yes, a woman,' she returned. "'Beautiful, you call her, and the work of God. You are wrong, Count.' He is not responsible for this woman, although he created the child in the image which seemed best to him. She is the result of man's handiwork, first a coward and then a thief. Estelle! Is it not true? A coward before your threats and stooping even to obey your commands. Does not your course resemble blackmail, Count, and is it not much more creditable than that of my father, from whom you so bravely defended me? He wished money for his daily needs. You desired the glory of a master-stroke in the world of diplomacy, and I was the most convenient tool for you both. I. Oh, let us go. I do not know why I came down here with you. I am afraid. You came, he interposed gently, because you trusted me, because your heart instinctively responds to mine. Ah, it is so, Estelle. Do not shrink from me, do not be afraid. Through your life and mine runs an undercurrent drawing us irresistibly together. It is deep, unfathomable, and very strong. It leads— Into darkness, she interrupted, into a bottomless pit of misery. How pale you are, my love, and how your opals glow! Is it because the heart beneath them is so restless and ill at ease? Restless indeed, she said, and very ill at ease. The candle flickered in the draught from the chimney, and the papers in the fireplace rustled impatiently. It is time to end the farce, she resumed slowly. Take the maps, Count Vladimir. 
I am powerless to prevent it. They are yours, and no doubt you paid well for them. But even then, your chain is not complete. I went to my husband's office at your command, and stole the roostshook papers, the price you set upon my happiness. I even started to meet you here, and give them into your hands, but I lost them, thank God, I lost them. No, do not speak, I have more to say. I took the synopsis, also, because I wished to preserve this happiness of mine at any cost, but by degrees I saw what I had done. I brought the cloud of dishonor to darken the life of the best man in the world, and when I realized what that meant to him, I determined to remove it at any price. I even offered myself in exchange for your ill-gained knowledge. I played with you, Count Vladimir, to gain time, as you would have done with me had our positions been reversed, and you did not get the synopsis. Tonight before I came away, I put it in my husband's desk where he cannot fail to find it, because I did not know what might happen to me, and because I have reached a conclusion as to what is best for me to do, best for him, I mean. Count Vladimir made an effort to speak, but she raised her hand, commanding silence. And so, she continued, her voice trembling uncontrollably, because I love the very ground my husband walks upon, but seem fated to bring only suffering upon him, I, who would gladly die for him if it were possible, because I am willing to sacrifice myself that his reputation may be untarnished, I am going away from him for ever. But not with you, Count Vladimir. You will return alone to the castles beyond the steppes, the palaces of enchantment, the prisons of Siberia. The wind swept around the corner of the house, down the chimney, through the old kitchen, and into the cellar beyond, almost extinguishing the candle upon the hearth. "'I am cold,' she said, with a shiver, as the papers rustled in the fireplace. "'Those papers, Estelle,' he said, "'are of inestimable value to my country. They contain data which for years it has endeavoured to procure.' plans, maps, and other information, priceless not only in connection with the Roostchuk matter. Securing them was the greatest triumph of my career, and I have accomplished some difficult tasks. There they lie, complete, within reach of my hand. I have greatly desired them. He paused, the muscles in his throat quivering visibly, and again she shivered in her fur-lined cloak. I am cold, she repeated, cold. Then, madame, he returned, picking up the candle, permit me to light the fire. He bent over the hearth and held the flame to a loose corner of the undersheet of paper. It blazed up instantly. Ah! she exclaimed. They were all on fire now, and the cellar was alight with flickering flames casting bright shadows into the darkness, eager flames which blazed fiercely, as though anxious to be done with their task. They burn well he said, do they not? She did not reply, and he folded his arms across his breast, and continued quietly. They are copies, you know. The originals were returned to the files of the State Department, or the War Department, as the case might be. How they blaze! I can see your face distinctly. It is very white, and beneath your eyes are purple shadows. You have suffered, and it is my fault." mine and the man's upstairs. "'Let the dead rest,' she interrupted sharply. He came a step nearer. 
So you think I do not love you, he said, that I do not know how to love. The light in the hearth died a little, then rose with renewed vigor, and across the floor black beetles hurried frantically, the heat having disturbed their place of residence. Very soon, resumed the Russian, there will be a charred mass in the fireplace, the result of weeks of labor. Soon, very soon, we will go. Recently my heart blazed as brightly as those papers. Like them, it will shortly be dead and cold, the result of weeks, yes, years, of longing. I am not very familiar with Bible history, he continued, but is there not a story of a man in hell, burning with thirst and seeing almost within his reach the water which would give him new life? He stretches out his hand, but he cannot touch it. His throat is parched, and he trembles with eagerness. It is there, pure and life-giving, but not for him. He longs, but may not attain, struggles, but may not achieve, he sees, but may not touch. For him the thirst, burning, unquenchable, never to be allayed. Put your cloak about you, Estelle Redmond, I'm going to take you home. She gazed at him with wide, incredulous eyes. Back to the house you left with such unwilling feet, back to the life you relinquished with such bitter tears, back to the Secretary of State. Home, she repeated, home. Love is unselfish, patient, and long-suffering, he said. You told me so yourself a moment ago, did you not? The blaze flickered and died away, leaving a charred mass with here and there a glowing spot of red. The fire is out, said Count Vladimir. Let us go. In the garden, beneath the curious moon, he paused and consulted his watch. One o'clock, he said. We spent two hours there. What arrangements did you make about your carriage? It was not to return. I said I would come home with Miss Bird. She turned and looked long at the old house with trembling lips. He's there alone, she whispered. Alone. It is best so, he said gently. Believe me, it is best. You have been generous she said brokenly. Three men, he said, met here in Washington. They and they only had you cause to fear. It was a strange coincidence. Lyndhurst you need no longer dread. He is a gentleman, and he knows you only as Mrs. Redmond. Your father's lips and mine are sealed forever, his by death and mine by love. You hold the key to the situation, and you only. Let me entreat you not to turn it. Only be silent, and all is well. Now let us go. She laid a detaining hand upon his arm. I want to thank you, she said. I misjudged you. I, I don't know what to say, Count Vladimir. I am stunned by the events of tonight. Some other time. The love of man for woman, said the Russian softly, passes understanding. Oh, Estelle, some time you will think of me with pity instead of bitterness. Look at me, into my eyes. Instinctively she obeyed. Blue eyes, he whispered, meant for happiness, but dark to-night with shadows. Red lips, ah, they should not quiver. They were made for smiles. Do not turn away, let me look, it is the last. Have I not renounced utterly, unconditionally? 
The wind swept down the alley, through the broken wall, and across the moonlit garden. It caught her cloak and blew it open, stirring the lace upon her gown, and touched with icy fingers the white breast, on which a red rose lay faded and dying. "'Give me the rose,' he said, and she held it towards him in silence. "'Sometime,' he said quietly, "'perhaps I shall dream dreams in the castles beyond the steps.' who knows? Let us go. The moon shone into an empty garden and down the alley, forming a path of light across the dark bricks. It looked again through the broken shutter of the octagon house and into the upper room, and the light fell with subdued luster. For here was a stillness unlike the quiet of the garden, an emptiness and yet a presence, dominant, invisible, and awe-inspiring." So the moon shone very softly, fearing to disturb the old man upon the floor. End of chapter 31